right, but let's just say that I hadn't seen it, and I said to you, I haven't seen Evil Dead 2 yet. What would you think? I'd think that you're a cinematic idiot, and I'd feel sorry for you. Hi, I'm Monica. And this is Brad. And this is Cinematic Idiot. Every two weeks, we watch a classic movie that we've always meant to see, but we've never gotten around to. We want you to watch these movies with us, like a movie book club. There's two rules. The films have to be from 1993 or earlier, and at least one of us hasn't seen it. So, hey, Brad, welcome to our third show. Third show? Who would have thought? (laughs) Slightly delayed, but still. Slightly delayed. I had to take a work trip out of state, and so I was gone for about a week, and I'm super glad to be back both uh, in Chicago and back away from the place that I was. Uh, So I'm super glad to be here uh, and getting started on talking about it. Glad to have you back. So first thing off the top, we should always mention, top of every show, this is a spoiler zone. We will be talking about the entire movie. Um, Just like a book club, you show up to book club and you haven't finished the book, guess what? They're going to spoil it for you. Too bad. So today's feature presentation and the film that we watched this week is The Third Man. Yes, 1949, directed by Carol Reed, starring Joseph Cotton, uh, Valley, uh, Orson Welles, and uh, Trevor Howard. uh, Classic of international film noir. And you picked this film for me to watch because it's one that you've seen before. Uh, not only have I seen it multiple times, it's one of my top five favorite films of all time. I love The Third Man. So I've, I know I've goaded you, I've picked at you for years to try to get you to see this. We, we own a copy of it. I, I know. It's sitting know. on the shelves. But I've never been able to get you to do it until this project. And it's not like I had like an active need to not watch The Third Man. It was just one of those things that like every night that it was like, hey, we could watch The Third Man. I would be like, no, let's watch Game of Thrones or whatever. You know, it would have been. Yes. <laughs> but it's a good thing that we have this project. Just like with Heartburn from last week. Right. Never would have watched that. Now with Third Man, you can't duck away from that. You can't say no any further. You have to watch the movie. No, and I'm so glad I did. It is really, really, really not only like a cool film and a seminal film, but one that was actually really fun to watch. So I'm really excited to talk about it with you. Excellent. I'm glad to hear you enjoyed it off the top. So before we get into (laughs) it, uh, as we mentioned, we will be spoiling the entire uh, movie. So a quick plot synopsis. Um, So it's a post-war film set in Vienna, which um, like a lot of cities in Europe theater become international cities so it has its um we start with a, a wonderful narration to kind of give us a, a scene of the racketeering and the black market in this international city of vienna which is run by the the americans the british the french and the russians with an international zone uh and we get to hear it's actually carol reed doing the voiceover to, to kick off the film which is really nice as the director um it's the story of holly martins played by joseph cotton who has a bit down on his luck after the war and he's come out to vienna because a friend of his harry lime says he has a job for him just as he arrives he finds out that harry's been killed in a car accident about two days before um, and he has just enough time to go to the funeral uh, and from there is picked up uh, sees the, the interesting cast of characters that have attended harry's funeral and he's picked up by major calloway trevor howard uh, who lays out the scene for him that his friend Harry was a bit of a bad man who died a few days before and that Holly sh- really should just head back to America. Um, Holly does not take that advice, sticks around, starts to poke his nose into it and realizes, you know, something is rotten in Denmark. Uh, something is going on. He believes his friend's been murdered. Um, so he begins to poke his nose into it. He follows up with Harry's girlfriend, Anna Schmidt, played by Valley. Um, he starts Is she to look, just a one-name person? She just goes by the one name. It's okay. Alita Valley. Um, okay. Just billed as Valley. Okay. Um, so he gets in with her, starts to meet his other friends, uh, Baron Kurtz, Dr. Winkler, Popescu, 
Um, and the stories don't all match up, especially when he talks to the porter who claims to have witnessed it and claims that when his friend was killed, they carried him across the square and there was a third man involved. Who was this third man? Never came up at the inquest. All the rest of the friends deny that there was a third man, but Holly Martin decides, I've got to get to the bottom of this case and continues to push and continues to push until he finds out who that third man is. With one of the great reveals, um, really honestly, if you haven't seen The Third Man, I'm gonna stop right now. If you haven't seen The Third Man and you'd like to see it at some point or just well, you like movies, stop now, pause the podcast, <laughs> go watch The Third Man. Not only is it a great time, but it has an amazing reveal. It has an amazing final third, final act of the film. I certainly suggest it. We're gonna ruin it shortly, but and then we end up with some wonderful chases through the sewer. Yeah. It's, Leave it at that for the moment. Okay. Um, well, I, I think it's okay. Like, let's let's talk about the reveal. Because so the big thing is when they're talking, like, Harry Lime, it's true, is not revealed until what? Like, the final third of the mm-hmm. film? Um, and, and one of the things that we know in the beginning, of course, is that Harry Lime is, is dead or supposed to be dead. Um, and ultimately, you know. And that's the spoiler. He's not dead. The, here's the spoiler. But I, I'll tell you, I haven't seen this film and I knew Harry Lime wasn't dead like this is at this point something that anybody who's watched enough films probably has a pretty good idea um also if you're watching the dvd and orson wells is on the cover you're probably looking around for orson wells here you're looking for him but it's since it's noir they do love flashback sequences there's always the chance that we're actually going to flashback in time that does not occur which is a break with a lot of film noir we actually get to meet up with harry later on and we're set through a chase through the streets he gets away from holly who brings it to the attention of, of Major Calloway, who doesn't believe him at first, but then realizes Harry's been hiding in the, the beautiful sewers yeah. of Vienna. And that leads to a further manhunt where we, we pit Calloway versus Holly Martins versus Anna Schmidt, who's in trouble. Um, her passport is fake. She's uh, um, going to be claimed by the Czechoslovakians, so she's going to be sent away. Mm-hmm. Um, so Holly makes a deal. He'll help out. He'll help catch Car- Harry um, if Anna is kept safe. Problems ensue, and then eventually we end up with an amazing chase through the sewers uh, for the last maybe 10, 15 minutes of the film as the uh, international police close their dragnet on on Orson Welles, Harry Lyme, running through the sewers, leading up to a a wonderful sequence where Joseph Cotton, Holly Martins, has to choose what to do with his friend, and he ends up killing him. Mm-hmm. Great sequence. Great, great finish to this film. And we get the second burial, then, of Harry Lyme. So, okay, let's talk about... This was a film that you felt really strongly that you wanted to choose it, and it's something that you saw a pretty long time ago for mm-hmm. the first time. Can it, would, when, under what circumstances did you see the It would have been in college. Time? It would have been one of those things as someone who's who coming into my love of film, looking at lists, okay. seeing the th- third man coming up. It's that, as you mentioned last week, it's, it was voted by uh, the BFI as one of the, it was the greatest British film of all time, at yeah. least a decade ago. They were willing to put that stamp on it. Um, that, that's a, more than enough for me to have to say I want to check it out. Orson Welles I always find to be a fascinating character. Even though I haven't seen enough of his, his work, he's, he's a very, very interesting person. Um, so to kind of have that together, it, it's, a, it's a classic post-war film, noir. I love film noir. Yeah. So at that time, I was very much compelled to check it out. Loved it. Fell in love with it immediately. I've probably watched it half a dozen times in the last 15 years. Okay. 
You know, um, so one of the things that I've probably referenced on this show before, but I'll say again, uh, is that I worked at a video store for a long time during college, and one of the rules that we had at the video store is that you could put on whatever movies that you wanted to put on, um, but they had to be like PG rated or below, which mm-hmm. meant that a lot of times we were putting on stuff that was older, like pre-rating systems, so that we could have some interesting stuff on in yeah. the store. And so uh, the third man was on a good amount. And so one of the things that was most recognizable to me about the film coming in was the zither music that's mm-hmm. there. Oh, yeah. So the music is really unique. The zither, um, if you don't know what zither is, you know, go ahead and just do a quick search for it so you get a, a chance to kind of hear what it sounds like. But it's sort of like a tinkly, twinkly, you know, sound that's going through. And It's, it's in the guitar lute family. Yeah. But it's played kind of like a, uh, a slide guitar. Okay. It's laid down and plucked. That right. way, it's very strange. Right, it is strange, but it makes it, it makes for a really interesting soundtrack mm-hmm. because it immediately kind of sets you off. It's very different from any kind of traditional score. Um, it's kind of charming and plucky at the same mm-hmm. time as it's foreign. Uh, the way, and An- so the it, way Anton Karras plays it and yeah. the music that he's composed for the film, it's jovial. Yeah. It's it's very fun, very lighthearted. Surprisingly, as we're as we have a lot of quite uh, quite a few actual chases through the darkened streets of Vienna. Uh, where you know Holly's running from thugs, or we're chasing down uh, Harry Lime. The, the music just plays on and, and spurs us on, but in a, in a lighthearted way, strangely enough. And I would say that's in keeping with my experience of the film. Like I felt like I was in for a really important film coming in, and it was really fun. There, mm-hmm. there was a lot um, of humor, even if it was really dark humor at times. Um, there was a lot of strange shots. Uh, I, I don't know if you mentioned the Dutch can't angles yet, but like that's a big thing mm-hmm. in this film is that the camera is often kind of turned to the side so that you're Constantly. looking at somebody sort of... Uh, from like askance so that they're just a little bit tilted mm-hmm. and it's just I, you know it's one of the ways that it really gets across like this is a strange place we're living in strange times mm-hmm. um, and the other thing that's really interesting to me about it is of course that this film was done in like a contemporary sense so like this is post-war but it's really recently post-war mm-hmm. you know for the entire world and so there's sh- when they're shooting in vienna and there's rubble all over the place it's like that's actually there at this time um and so that sets it in a really interesting sort of place in time i i don't know about you but for me i feel like i hear so much and read so much that's set during world war ii but the post-war era i, I really don't know as much about and i'm not as immersed in that world so starting to see the world kind mm-hmm. of going back to trying to have some kind of effort at normalcy, but like have all of these things of war everywhere as a reminder um, is a really interesting way to, to watch a film. And the film, thankfully, breaks out from more than just being an artifact of the time. It's, yeah. It is very entertaining. It's funny. It moves well. It's got great excitement. Um, for me, it's the reason it's one of my favorite films of all time is not because it's important. It's not because it makes a high on the list. It's just a, a damn good watch. Right. It's just a lot of fun to check it out. It's one of the reasons I, I put it in every few years. I've got the DVD. I can just slide it on in. And I'm always begging you to check it out. I so know. I'm we glad now. That. So, so now <laughs> I can just always say, hey, let's watch The Third Man again. It'll never end, even though you've seen The Third Man. So talk to me about Joseph Cotton. Because for me... He feels like the weak link in the film um, yeah. in like a really real way. But then I started to think, well, maybe people just look at him as being this like sort of cipher that you can <laughs> um, a appreciate little bit of that, in that I think, way. to a degree. Originally, um, as they started in production, uh, David O. Selznick, who brought the American money and the American actors into the film, wanted to uh, cast uh, Jimmy Stewart uh, in an early, you know, not an early role, but earlier on. 
in his career. Um, and Carol Reed and uh, Sir Alexander Corda, who's the producer of the film, who owned British Line Studios that produced this film, uh, fought for Joseph Cotton. They liked his everyman nature. He's uh, maybe doesn't have as much baggage or as much, um, uh, I guess, what you would expect from Jimmy Stewart. You know, presuppositions of, of exactly who he's going to be uh, in the film. Joseph Cotton, I think that cipher thing, he's just an all-American guy. Mm-hmm. He's playing a writer of pulp B novels, uh, westerns. He's just likable. You know, he's just happy-go-lucky, okay. not much going on to him. I think it's, he's supposed to be light. And so a cipher, it's not a bad way to put it. He's, he is not a classic uh, noir um, hero. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why a lot of people, even though I would say it's definitely one of the, uh, it could be considered one of the top international noir mm-hmm. films, you know, one of the most famous, certainly. Uh, there's still a lot of argument of whether it's actually a noir film at all. It uh, Certainly stylistically, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the the, the shadow uh, usage, a lot of night for night shooting, and so many Dutch canted angles that <laughs> it, it almost hurts your neck to I watch know, the film. I know. Um, stylistically, it's very much noir, but thematically, it's not necessarily noir. Having Joseph Cotton as this kind of just all shucks nice guy who's just put into a bad situation, who doesn't want to believe his friend is a racketeer, who kind of does want to take care of his girlfriend as his ex-girlfriend as he's kind of fallen in love with her. You know, he just wants to do the right thing. He thinks his friend's been murdered and he wants to put it right. Um, And the police are too busy just thinking of him as a crook. He's just a nice guy. And so I think working him as a cipher works perfectly. Joseph Cotton's great in that. So he works for you. He works for me in that um, he doesn't hit... Your, your standard noir uh, protagonist, but that's how it's written. Uh, with a great script from Graham Greene, uh, as we mentioned, this was, uh, film was directed by Carol Reed, uh, who also did Odd Man Out. He also did um, Fallen Idol. He won an Oscar for Oliver uh, for, for direction for that. Um, Sir Alexander Corda produced, brought in David Oselznik to uh, bring in some American money to help get this funded. Um, and Anton Karras was just a, a performer they found that Carol Reed fell in love with, Zither score, top of the charts, yeah. everyone falls in love with it. But Graham Greene does an amazing job with his script. Um, very little has changed. Uh, he fought for the ending. He, uh, he wanted a happy ending, did not get a happy ending. And of course, everyone knows about this, the Orson Welles edition of the Swiss cuckoo clock speech, yeah. which is infamous. I think in everyone Spain. knows about this. So let's go back to that scene because I yeah. feel like that scene is a really important one and one that I thought was most impressive as a modern viewer um, was, you know, both the nuance that was displayed mm-hmm. there. I felt like that was rare uh, for 49 uh, or, or the 40s and 50s in general in film, as well as the sort of moral implications of what was going on there. So that, that scene was fantastic. Scene. So just to set it up, um, you know, uh, Harry Lyon, played by Orson Welles, is sort of waiting in this area for the Joseph Cotton character um, to head back. And they're kind of coming back together for the first time to see each other after they don't trust one another. Uh, and and there's some idea that maybe Harry Lyon might be willing to kill him at this oh, point. Oh, um, And so they end up kind of together going into a Ferris wheel that takes them kind of up and around the square in Vienna, just the two of them in this shot as it kind of goes up and around and they're having this long extended conversation about the nature of morality and what that means. Oh, and it's a brilliant sequence. It's wonderfully set up. Um, they, they get on it. It's, it's, uh, Joseph Cotton has put out word that he wants to see Harry. He knows Harry's alive and they meet. And through most of the sequence... There's a reasonable belief that that Harry's going to kill uh, Holly Martin, Joseph Cotton's character. He opens the door. He's talking about the little people like they're ants. He could crush them. How many, if you could, 
kill one of them and get $20,000, how many would you be willing to rub out before it, it hurt your conscience? It's really only the instance in which finally as they go back and forth with the information that they have that Holly Martin's able to put on to, to Harry what's happened on the ground since he's gone into hiding and Harry can relay how he's feeling and what his end is. It's very ambiguous on his end. That Harbin, the gentleman who steals penicillin for Harry in his black market racketeering scheme, is the one that's been dug up out of Harry's original grave. It's only at that point does Harry realize the police are on to him. They know he's not dead. It's only for that proof of concept that, okay, Holly is not a liability. He's not someone who can still turn me in because he's, seen, he's the only person who's seen me in the yeah. flesh um, who's not an actual compatriot there in Vienna. Um, it's only in that admission that he then realizes bumping off Holly not necessarily a good idea. He could still be used as a compatriot. And he then closes the door to the, the Ferris wheel car yeah. as they're at the top of the uh, the apex. It's wonderfully done. It's cool. but Great so tension. The, the, the famous story is about Orson Welles and the cuckoo clock mm-hmm. is that, you know, Graham Greene, celebrated author, obviously, Wonderful. for so many reasons, has also had, has done his fair share of, of celebrated screenplays at this point in his career and went on to do more. Um, but the biggest line that everyone remembers from that scene is one that was that Orson Welles said and was not in the script. Whether or not Orson Welles actually made up the line is in contention. And he didn't. And so he's he's actually, it's come out that he had, had okay. not. So it was left with an idea that at the end of the sequence, as the, as the doors closed on the Ferris wheel, and they, they go to the bottom, and they're both alive, and there's a bit of an uneasy uh, truce between the two of these characters, pretty much just Harry needs to have like a pithy remark to take off, to, you know, to kind of express his worldview to show that he's he's willing to put capitalism over morality that you know that he what he considers to be doing right by him is all in the eye of the beholder so he tells the cuckoo clock story but the reason you can tell that it's it's something that he's cribbing is that he begins the phrase as he leaves is as the fellow what said what the fellow said in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias they had warfare terror murder and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. It's just a pithy little sentence, but it's something cribbed from another piece. I'm not sure where that's from, but Orson Welles, it's Fairly known that he is not, he didn't just write that whole clock. Yeah, I read it was like some Hungarian play or something. Yeah, it, it's, there's a lot of different places that could that be coming from. But that's the reason he begins the phrase with, as the fellow says. He's giving that, I'm not the originator of this quote, I'm not just going to quote it straight off. But it is one of the most classic lines uh, from that film. Graham Greene, great work. Everyone remembers that, that exchange. And it's just essentially more or less an off-the-cuff from Orson Welles to explain the, the character a little bit further, to explain his worldview, and to be a bit of a tip of the cap to a wonderful scene as he takes off and waves and runs off back to the uh, the Russian sector and away from Holly Martins and the British International Police. Yeah, it, it was very cool. And so you mentioned just before we got into the cuckoo clock scene was talking about how Graham Greene originally had wanted a happy ending. And from what I read, Carol Reed, the director, also wanted the happy ending. They both okay. did. Um, and the one who actually cut it was Selznick. Okay. So for 
for uh, everything that Selznick has said in terms of everyone talking about how he brought in some of these actors that maybe weren't first choices or doing some of these other things, he's the one who said that Anna's, uh, Anna's love or Anna, in effect, should die with Harry Lyme. Um, and so at the end, when Joseph Cotton is going to possibly miss his plane out of Vienna, which he desperately needs to get out of, Certainly. so it's very dangerous for him, um, decides he wants to stay back and talk with her one final time. And so he's waiting for her as a callback to this other scene in the film earlier and um, she's from a long distance so he's waiting for her and she's walking, walking, walking and just walks past him in that final shot and it's a beautiful Mm -hmm. scene it was really affecting to me um and one that i thought really worked still um you know well framed well put together it's it's a beautiful way to end that film i had always heard that that carol was was fine with this that um when the story was worked out um alexander corda kind of came to graham green with with an idea for a film you know basically just i want to post-war vienna i want it to be international i want to be involving racketeering graham green go and Graham Greene then essentially wrote a novella that was unpublished until many years later. And in that, there's at least the illusion that Anna and Holly will can get together, that they can find love in each other's arms after the loss of Harry uh, to both of them. But as they work through the, the script, as far as I know, Carol Reed made those changes, made those changes to actually get... Uh, that that somewhat sad ending. I'm surprised. I know Selznick fought for that as well. I'm also a little surprised because this film had been chopped up a bit when it was released in the state. It had uh, lost the narration a little bit. Um, they actually did the narration in the states with Joseph Cotton to kind of get you in the story like he's talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it really, it's great that it's Carol Reed doing the original narration because it's it's a seedier. Uh, note that is supposed to kick off the film. And I guess O'Sullivan cut out a lot of the seedier moments to kind of uh, soften the tone a bit more to make it a little bit lighter for American audiences. So I'm not, but I'm a little surprised that O'Sullivan fought so hard. I know he did, but I'm also a little surprised that maybe Reed didn't. So that's, that'll leave that up in the air. Everything that, yeah, I think that there, there are probably conflicting reports. I'm sure that that's true. Um, and what I read was in response to this idea that Selznick really had very little to do with the third man in the first place or that, um, that, Wells ultimately would have been responsible for the direction, which was another rumor that came out. And, and what and they it, were saying was no. This and yeah, that's didn't terrible. Happen. I think as the production got going, uh, Alexander Corda, Sir Alexander Corda, he was a knight, um, brought in those like for the money and to brought in a few different things. And they fought over who to cast for things. Uh, Volley was a, uh, a Selznick player, yes. so yeah, she was does. brought in. That was a condition that she had to be uh, had to be in there. Um, he did not. Oselznik did not want Wells. Um, beyond being the boy genius who was also pretty much an infanterie, like he's always box office poison. He yeah. did not want him on this film. Had his, you know, but Carol and Corda fought. They got pretty much whatever thing they wanted there. Um, but he was he was pretty awful on the set of uh, Third Man too, wasn't he? I heard well, yeah, that he showed up late. Yeah. So he, we joked around. I mean, the very first sequence you meet Harry Lyme. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in wonderful thing. He leaves a huge shadow, and there's a bus that mo- a tram that moves by, and he runs off, and all you see is his sh- giant shadow on the uh, the streets, on the on the walls of the as he's running away, and Holly can't catch up to him, cannot re- cannot get up to him, and he eventually realizes, oh, he's gone into the sewer somehow. He's disappeared. We joked around that. I bet that's a stunt double for Wells. I don't see Wells running anywhere. That's true. Yeah. That was not a stunt double. It was an, it was an AD who they put in uh, the same coat because Wells was late to production. He didn't show up on time. Uh, once there, he didn't like the idea of shooting in the sewers. Yeah. Uh, there were conflicting reports that eventually he warmed up. I think Carol Reed tried to, to soft pedal that later on. That, oh, no, he was, he was game. 
he wouldn't been that much game because they eventually rebuilt the sewers at Shepperton Studios in England to shoot the scenes in there because it was the sewer. Yeah, it was the sewer. Though I guess they actually loved shooting in the sewers because it was quite climate controlled. So it was actually a really nice area for them to do it. Um, well, and of Selznick, beyond having some of that creative strife, one of his best things is this film was shot in like two months, for the most part, in Vienna. Yeah. And Selznick, an alleged amphetamine user, I say alleged, um, is the person that's attributed to turning Carol Reed on to Benzedrine, which I think is more than just alleged, alleged, but I'll say allegedly using Benzedrine to essentially shoot the film 24 hours a day for eight weeks straight. Yeah, they had, didn't they have like three different crews? Yeah, they had a day crew, night crew, sewer crew, and he just ran from area to area. As they set up, took down, and you know the day crew had the least to do, mostly shooting at night. Well, and poor Joseph Cotton, he's in almost every scene in this film. Run around, he probably was on, allegedly was on Benzedrine too. Probably <laughs> he probably had to give him a couple naps here and there. But yeah, three three crews working nonstop. But yes, Orson Welles, he always a bit of a particular fellow. Yeah. Um, and I guess on this, yeah, showed a plate. They had to do some of the chase sequences. I think most of the chase sequences were it's his shadow. It's not actually him. They actually had the AD running with a hanger to keep the form. Oh my the hanger still in the coat to help keep the form of his of his much larger size. Um, and yeah, he didn't like working in the in the sewer. So they eventually, uh, I believe they they did the Shepperton Studios. They had to recreate the sewer, at least portions of the sewer, for some close up work, which they probably would have had to do anyway. But also, they shot the um, the Ferris wheel sequence. In, in England as well. Very cool. The music, I want to talk about quickly. Yeah. Anton Karras, The Zither, it's amazing. Uh, what I love is that this actually was, um, he was playing at a party. This was back in the day when a, a movie crew would come to town and a big party would be thrown for them to welcome to the city, welcome to the area. And he was just an entertainer playing off to the side. They hadn't decided on the music. Um, usually at this time with a lot of film noir, you have, you have a couple of different options. Do you incorporate jazz? Uh, which is usually heavily used in, in, in noir, or do you go with maybe you know, deep, strong waltzes, you know, something ominous? And they couldn't decide. And this is one of the re- areas where Carol Reed just had a spark of inspiration, heard Anton Karras at the party and said, I want that. That feels like Vienna. This feels like something off kilter that I want to go for, as, which plays throughout the whole film. It really sparks this really interesting mood. Yeah, it's a huge part of the personality of the film. It's one of the things that the film is, at the end of the day, the most famous for is that amazing Zither score. Made Anton Karras an international star, gave him a huge career. Um, They eventually had to, he only spoke German, so it took him a while to even figure out how to get him to be in the picture to do the work. Uh, But they actually flew him back to Shepperton in England when the entire picture was done and translated the whole thing to German for him so he could know what was going on, and then he wrote this amazing 40-minute score for it. Well, it was a really cool film. I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to see it. It's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, I re- recommend it to everyone who, who has a chance. It's, it's fun. It moves quick. It's got great action, great suspense. It's one of, I think, structurally, one of, I think, the best films I've ever seen. And it's one of those things that makes me realize why I, you know, I love film. Um, it's why I love... Uh, of watching these movies, just these stories and these personalities. I mean, it was... Orson Welles is only in the last 30 minutes of the film, but he just owns the movie. Yeah, it's, he it's, looms large. As he put it, it's, it's, he think he mentioned it was, it's a star picture because it's the kind of film that they spend the entire movie talking about Harry Lyme. Where's Harry Lyme? What happened to Harry Lyme? Why did Harry Lyme die? Who was Harry Lyme? And then when he shows up, he's only on for the last third. He's the star of the picture. It's amazing. Um, I always think of it 
Whenever I also think of a third man, I think of my friend Phil, who got me into the film and helped me along the way of, of learning about film, who always kind of equated Harry Lyme, and I might be misquoting him uh, after all these years, Harry Lyme uh, is similar to Jabba the Hutt. Um, uh-huh. Basically, the first two Star Wars films, Jabba the Hutt, Jabba the Hutt, I gotta get back because of Jabba the Hutt, and then by the time he shows up, he's a star. Jabba the Hutt, larger than life, both literally and figuratively. I always will be attached to me that I think of Harry Lime. Strangely <laughs> enough, I equate him with Jabba the Hutt. Very good. Thank like you to that. my friend, Phil. So that, that is The Third Man uh-huh. from 1949, directed by Carol Reese, starring Joseph Cotton, Valley, Trevor Howard, and Jabba the Hutt as Orson Welles. <laughs> well, very cool. It, it was a really good experience. I'm glad you liked it. Um, so now is the part of the show where we talk about something that was kind of going on this week in terms of pop culture, popular culture or something that really caught our attention. It's our time for our pop culture intermission. Absolutely. No so, new name yet. One day we will get a ahead, new name for that. But, but, but that's what we're doing. Um, so we're nothing if not highbrow here on Cinematic Idiots. Of course. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about something that has really been kind of in... Uh, in the wind this week. Uh, So recently I took a trip to San Francisco. It was a a fun trip, but I had an opportunity to kind of get away from everything for a little bit. And uh, people I knew weren't in town yet. And so I decided to go and see a movie because I so rarely get a chance to do that. Um, And so during that time I chose to go see Inside Out, which I liked a lot. It was, it was a great film. Um, But at the same time they were having a special sneak preview of one Magic Mike XXL. Um, during the sneak preview, uh, the entire film, the theater was populated with male strippers, local male strippers that everyone could pose with. And I was like frantically um, texting you about how ridiculous this was. And it, it was too much for me. It brought a smile um, to my face. <laughs> so, so ridiculous. I did not take a picture. Um, uh, sadly, I sort of wish I would have at this point. Um, but I did see the first Magic Mike. I saw it with a big group of girlfriends, as you do. Um, I was excited for it as a film because of Soderbergh and because of the Matthew McConaughey McConaughey that was going on at the time. Um, so, I, and I liked the film overall. I think it was memorable and, uh, you know, it kind of started Channing Tatum's rise to power. Um, and so there's, there's a lot going on in that film, but at the end of the day, I had zero interest in or hopes for Magic Mike XXL, despite my, uh, sort of positive feelings towards Channing Tatum as a, a new, the nouveau bro, as people call him. Um, and so I read an article by Anne Helen Peterson, who writes for BuzzFeed, among other things. If you've never read anything by her, she is a former academic. She was getting her PhD in something involving celebrity gossip uh, stories. So she was studying from an academic perspective uh, the gossip rags in America throughout the ages. And then at some point just decided to like say, never mind, not interested in academia. I'm just going to go start writing um, for the internet. And so she, through that, has started to write for BuzzFeed. And she writes some really interesting pieces, including this piece that came out uh, in the mid the middle of the week last week that was about... Magic Mike and uh, the, pardon me if you have children in the room, you might want to cover their ears. But uh, so, so the headline for it was Magic Mike XXL gets off on getting you off, um, which is kind of amazing. Uh, but so the entire article is really impressive because it's all about uh, 
Magic Mike from a feminist perspective and what Magic Mike XXL takes in terms of the female gaze and in terms of what uh, people are trying to do in this film that's different than any film that's been done before. Um, it was shockingly interesting and probably the only thing I could have read that would make me want to go see Magic Mike XXL. So thank you, Anne Helen, Helen Peterson, for another really great article and one that actually made me excited to go see the movies again. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, my pop culture intermission this week is um, since we were last in your ears um, the BBC America has begun their uh, adaptation of Susanna Clarke's 2004 novel Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell this is by far my favorite book of all time I love this book I've been so sad over the last decade that there hasn't been a follow-up from Susanna Clarke waiting you know for the various projects that, that were to begin and to close um, you know, bad ideas for movies, you know, miniseries that had, were going to start, never got completed. But now BBC America has finally put one together, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it's a seven-parter. We're about halfway through it. Um, this book is is magical because it actually deals with magic. Yeah. But it's beautifully put together. It's an incredible story. It's, you know, it's a tome. It's like 700 pages rife with footnotes, which are easily skippable, but really add to this wonderful world. It's this Jane Austen and Charles Dickens and J.R.R. Tolkien all had an amalgam style yeah. and put that together for a Napoleonic era uh, magical showdown. It's wonderful. It's one of my favorite reads. I've read, I'd read it probably every two or three years. And I really have to admit, I'm really enjoying the miniseries. They seem to have captured the tone well. I love the casting. Um, Special effects can be weak at times, but in that like British way, that's yeah, sort of they don't. They, it's more you know, it's not complete full on Doctor Who, right? But unfortunately, it's not Game of Thrones, so they don't have Game of Thrones money, so they're not going to be able to go up to the highest of levels. But I've enjoyed it quite a bit. I think it's a faithful adaptation. They've, they've mixed a few things up, cut things a, a little bit down, but I've. It's not a travesty. It's certainly something I would enjoy. Um, and I would certainly recommend anyone who is willing to watch a movie about magicians in, in England during the Napoleonic War where there's a history of magic that's disappeared and two upstarts who decide to bring it back and deal with fairies and, you know, just wonderful things. It's a truly incredible book. Um, not for everyone, as I said, it's a massive tome. Yeah, but you know, I, I think you're you're underselling it because I feel like it is, it, it is long. There, That's very yes. true. But I feel like... As, even if you're not into fantasy, I'm not particularly into fantasy no. myself, um, and I'm not into historical fiction, nor do I like uh, Jane Austen particularly in my reading. Um, and so, all of those things, though, of course, you know, that comes from that. It, it was a really fantastic book, really readable and immersive and epic. Um, mm -hmm. So that by the end of it, you really feel like you've gotten to know a lot of different characters, and you have real. Uh, Stakes, and you know, like they're they're real things to care about. It's a it's a great book, and I'm enjoying the miniseries too. Yeah, it's, oh. it's well done. So currently on BBC America, Johnson Strange and Mr. Norrell, and that brings us to our last segment, which we always like to start with: What are you reading? Um, for me, right now, I've just finished the 28th volume of a graphic novel series, a comic book called Usagi Yojimbo, okay. which uh, translates to Rabbit Bodyguard. Uh, for some people of our age, they may remember him from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoons. Um, and that was my line. brother's band's name in 1997. That's terrible. That's uh, this is the uh, graphic novel series that's been going on for about 30 years. The interlude into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is more of a, a side thing. It doesn't, it's not necessarily canon, but it's uh, from the sole creator, Stan Sakai, 
It's being published by Dark Horse Comics. He's the creator, the writer, the artist. Um, he's an amazing illustrator. He does the lettering on it. It's a wonderful all-ages book. I have to admit, I was very, very late to the Usagi Yojimbo train, um, but I'm enjoying it. I've busted through maybe 20 volumes in the last year. Um, it's a wonderful story of, uh, of Miyamoto Usagi, um, who it's wonderfully put together as it builds itself as a masterful adaptation of samurai legend sequential art. I think that's a perfect way to describe it. It's about a ronin who, after his lord has been killed, just travels the countryside, gets into adventures. It's funny. It's at times a buddy cop, uh, a buddy uh, comedy. Uh, it's a love story. It's wonderfully um, researched about Japanese history and culture. It was an amazing issue. Um, you know, maybe a few years ago about Japanese tea service. It was just a nearly silent issue in which Usagi participated in a Japanese tea service with a, a possible paramour. Um, there's lots of action, lots of adventure. It's a horror story. There's a suspense thriller. It's incredibly episodic with a few major arcs. It's one of the best comic books of all time. Uh, Chris Sims, a few months ago from Comics Alliance, basically said, it's been going for 30 years and there's never been a bad issue. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, there are a few books that are just never put a wrong foot forward, never go down a blind alley. Every issue seems fun, seems important, seems to be propelling the story, even when it's really not propelling the story. Yeah. Um, as I said, it's an all-ages book. I would add this to anyone older than seven years old and up. It's light on the, the... There's a lot of violence, but it's cartoony to a certain degree. It's not too gruesome and graphic. Um, language... There's almost none. Uh, and, you know, there's a little bit of romance, but it's very, very hush-hush behind the doors, you know, closed doors. It's very much would have been fine during the Hayes Code period that the third man was made. Um, it is all anthropomorphic animals. Um, so Usagi Ojimbo, rabbit bodyguard, he's a rabbit. So that puts a lot of people off. I would say, once again, look past that. It's an amazing work. If you love comic books, if you love graphic novels, you should already be reading it. You probably already have read it. Um, if you have someone who is an early reader who would be interested in reading through comic books, I can recommend. I would recommend it to every ten year old out there. It's awesome. It's fun. Susagi Yojimbo. Is it still going? Yes, thankfully, I've got about two or three volumes to still catch up that are being published this year. But it's still going. It's a monthly comic. Wow. Uh, it's in black and white, but that shouldn't scare anybody away. Very cool. Well, um, so my book this week is, uh, it's actually a novel. I have been not reading as many novels as I'd like to recently. So I got back into an audiobook, um, my car, uh, which is The Buried Giant uh, by Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, you may recognize that name because he's been sort of a titan of literature in general, but particularly of British literature. Uh, his two most known uh, books from the last 20 years or so are uh, The Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, both of which were also made into acclaimed films, um, but both of which are very different, and they're very different from this book, uh, The Berry Giant. So The Berry Giant is a fantasy. It is about an older couple who have sort of forgotten where they're from um, in a you know fantasy historical period with Sir Gawain and the dragons and um, Britons and Saxons all over, you know, the countryside. And so they decide to leave this place that they're from and try to find their long lost son who they don't quite remember what happened to him. Um, it, it's a strange story. It feels very much like a fable. Um, and the narration is that kind of dreamy British narration uh, that really 
lets you feel like somebody's telling you a bedtime story everywhere you go. So it's it's been a really great um, audio in particular, but I think that for anybody who can appreciate a good fable uh, or who likes Ishiguro, this is a really great way to go. It's his first book in a decade um, and a very strange step for him, but one that people are really enjoying and I'm enjoying it too. I cannot wait for you to finish it so I can read it. <laughs> That's true. Um, in the spirit of this, you know, one of the things that we do is talk about the film that we're going to watch next time. And because, Brad, last time you picked a film that you really enjoyed and one that you love, I kind of wanted to do the same thing and make you watch a film that I really love uh, okay. and give you the opportunity to see it. So we're going to watch a film from 1964 called The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Okay. Um, it is a French film starring Catherine Deneuve in one of her very earliest roles um, at age 20. It was a very brightly colored film, which in 1964 was still the kind of thing that uh, was was very interesting to audiences. And it's a musical, and the kind of musical where every single word in the musical is sung um, in French. <laughs> so don't let that scare you away. Um, it's one of my very favorite films. It's beautiful. It's vibrant. It's um, the kind of thing that I feel like has has been forgotten a bit in a way that's a shame um but it had a beautiful restoration that became available in 2004 for many years a lot of the colors that made it so special in the beginning were lost um and that restoration happened in the early 2000s and there was just a blu-ray release i think last year um that really restored the film too so i really also want the opportunity to watch the blu-ray release okay. and get to see the film the way that it was meant to be seen um but i'm really looking forward to this because it is just the kind of like french romantic musical that if those things sound at all appealing to you you should be checking this out uh it, it's <laughs> i'm a bit gobsmacked that it's that's what i'm going to have to watch next that seems so strange i just figured it was some weird french pretentious thing and it sounds like it might be actually fun so it's it's a very cool film why am i not seeing fun. this okay classic cinematic very idiot. emotional okay that sounds great well, you've been listening to Brad and Monica, your own cinematic idiots. Huge thanks to our producer, editor, and consigliere, Clay Addy, who puts this show together. Thank you, Clay. Uh, thanks to Tom DJ at Bossman Graphics for our amazing logo that he designed. I love our logo. I love seeing it in the podcast doc every week, um, even on those weeks when there are no shows. If you like the show, please review us on iTunes. Thanks for the reviews that have already been sent in. Uh, follow us on Twitter. We're at Cinematic Idiots. And, of course, we have a Facebook page. Everyone has a Facebook page. We do, too. Come join us. Uh, give us suggestions for a new titles for segments. We would love that. And remember, don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. Thank you. Take care.